On today's episode of 8020 Productivity, we're going to talk about a concept called force concentration. I'm going to marry that to a little thing that I call the 300 rule. Between these two things is a powerful mix. It's a mix that can explode your productivity while lowering how much effort you put into things. If that sounds interesting to you, stay tuned. Let's get started. Most things don't matter, but the few that matter matter a lot. Welcome to 8020 Productivity, the show dedicated to helping you do more by doing less so that you can have more time and energy to enjoy life to the fullest. Now here's your host, author, speaker, and productivity nerd, Anthony Sani. Let's kick this one off with a little puzzle. Here's a puzzle for you. A hypothetical. Imagine that you are the commander of an army, an army of 25 soldiers. I know it's a small number, but it's hypothetical. An army of 25 soldiers, and you have the task of going into enemy territory and taking over that territory. It's an important piece of territory. It, it gives you routes to resources, and it's a strategic win. It would be a strategic win for you in the big war if you could take over that territory. There's just one little catch. It's guarded by 100 enemy soldiers. Now, assume that you have the same amount of skill. Right? It's not like you have this crack team of, of expert soldiers and they're a bunch of cavemen wielding, wielding wooden clubs or baseball bats. No, you are technologically, strategically, tactically matched to these people, to the enemy. Now, you have 25 soldiers versus 100. Two questions for you. Number one, how much of a disadvantage really are you at? And number two, what would be the best strategy to give you a fighting chance at success? The answer to those two questions is at the heart of today's episode on force concentration and what I'm calling the 300 rule. All that will make more sense in a second. So with no further ado, let's get right into it. Force concentration. In the year 1868, a young man was born. His name was Frederick Lanchester. Frederick Lanchester was born in the city of London in the United Kingdom. He would go on to become a very accomplished engineer with over 260 patents to his name. But it was not the servo drives or the aircraft machinery or any of the other brilliant inventions that Mr. Lanchester came up with that would make him famous. No, it would be instead his contribution to Britain's fight in the World War in 1916. See, he devised an operational strategy for the Royal Air Force, and by so doing, he formulated the first and second laws of Lanchester, which described the forces needed for winning military battles. Now, this was back in 18... This, well, he was born in 1868, but, but this was back in 1916. And right up until the late 20th century, these laws were still used to predict the outcome of military battles. So what exactly were these laws that Mr. Lanchester came up with? Let's go back to our hypothetical, the puzzle we started with. You have 25 soldiers versus 100. Remember, the first question we asked was, how much of a disadvantage are you at really? Now, most people will look at that and say, okay, it's a four to one disadvantage, right? For every one soldier you have, the enemy has 
four soldiers, and you'd be right. That's more of a ratio. But Lanchester said it's not just about the number of soldiers. He showed mathematically that it's really about a comparison of how much force each soldier can exert. Now, you might also think, well, I'm at a disadvantage of 75 soldiers, which is another way of saying four to one, right? So 100 minus 25, the disadvantage, you might say, is 75 soldiers. But in conflict, it's not just the number of soldiers, but really it's about the amount of force that is that can be exerted by the soldiers. So Lanchester came up with what is now called the square law. In other words, the disadvantage of being outnumbered in battle is not linear. It's not a linear function. It's a square function. So if you had one soldier going up against another soldier, the difference between their forces is zero because one squared is one minus one squared is one equals zero, assuming, of course, that they have equal fighting skills, as it were. But if you had one soldier going up against two, the difference is not two minus one. It's actually four minus one. So two squared, four minus one squared, three, and two squared, four minus one squared gives you three. So it's not one. And as it scales up, this law of Lanchester shows us as the disparity, as the difference in the number of forces scales up, the disadvantage to the, to the less number or the advantage to the greater number goes exponentially, not linearly. So let's go back to our hypothetical. Our hypothetical of your 25 soldiers versus 100. Now you see that the disadvantage is not 75. It's not. It's really the difference between 100 squared, which is the number of soldiers you're up against, and 25 squared. Now, let's do the math. So 100 squared is 10,000, and 25 squared is 625. The difference is not 75. It's 9,375 over 9,000 units of force of disadvantage for your army and advantage for the other army. So the answer to the first question of how much of a disadvantage you're at, well, the answer is a lot, a lot of disadvantage and a lot of advantage for the other person. Now, that is one thing that Lanchester's Laws helps us to do. It helps us to estimate, given equal ability, how much of a disadvantage you're at. It, the real insight was that it's not linear. It is rather exponential. Now, the second question in the puzzle was, was what would be the best strategy? to give you a fighting chance. Now let's try and answer that question. Let me add a few more details. I know, I know, maybe I kept that away from you not to give you a clue to the answer, but it, it just, just bear with me here. It was a little tricky, but let's talk about it. Imagine that you had these 100 soldiers and they're covering a certain territory. It wouldn't be smart for all 100 soldiers to be guarding just one side of the territory, right? Unless that territory is shaped in a way that it's really difficult to attack from somewhere else. Given a fairly open territory, you want to split up your soldiers so that they cover the grounds effectively. You don't want them all in one place. So let's assume that they try to cover 20 different possible areas of ingress, 20 points of ingress, points of infiltration, if you will. Now, 100 divided by 20 is 4. So if they were spread out evenly, you'd have about four soldiers guarding each point of potential infiltration. You probably see where this is going, and you see how force concentration is going to come into play here. How would you then attack the enemy to give you the best chance of success? 
there are a few options, obviously. You could spread your 25 soldiers into, you could send one soldier each, for example, to the 20 points of ingress and keep five in reserve, having one soldier go up against your enemy's four at, at each point. That wouldn't be very bright, would it? Knowing what we know now about the disadvantage, you'd have one soldier with one squared force versus four soldiers with four times four, which is 16, that soldier would, wouldn't last very long. Let's just put it that way. And you, you would end up losing all your soldiers almost guaranteed. However, what if you took another approach? What if you took the approach that is the essence of force concentration, which your numerically smaller number of 25 versus 100, if you concentrated 20 of those 25 soldiers on one point of infiltration that is guarded by four soldiers, let's do the math now. Now you have your 20 soldiers with a force squared of 400 going up against the enemy with a force squared of 16, four times four. You've gone from being at a disadvantage of over 9,000 units of force to being at an advantage of 400 minus 16, which is 384. So you flipped the table, as it were, from a position of disadvantage to a position of advantage, and all you did was concentrate your forces in one point. That is literally what force concentration is about. Now, this makes sense from a military perspective, and I think it's worth mentioning here that Lanchester did not invent force concentration. In the Battle of Trafalgar, where the British fleet was up against a numerically superior French fleet, the British were able to defeat the French and not lose a single ship in the process by applying force concentration, because the nature of naval warfare at the time was that you could flank the enemy and basically make the size of the fleet less relevant and concentrate your forces on one point. So Lanchester did not invent force concentration. His contribution to military strategy was his ability to numerically express it in rigorous mathematical terms that provided a fairly consistent way to estimate or to predict the outcome of battles in, in, in conflict. So let's, let's go on from there now. So now that you understand what would be the best approach, it makes sense from a military perspective. But oftentimes in our businesses and in our personal lives, we don't apply force concentration. So in the next section, we're going to talk about one of the applications and one of the ways in which force concentration is used in business. We'll look at one specific case study, which can yield us a lot of lessons. And then from that case study, we'll, we'll kind of translate that into our personal lives, take lessons from that, and see how we can begin to use force concentration to improve our own productivity, profitability, etc. So let's get into that next. Okay, so force concentration in the world of business. Perhaps you've heard the expression marketing campaign. Maybe you've heard the expression going and taking sales territory, seizing on market share, etc. All these you might recognize as military expressions. The, the world of business loves to talk about themselves in terms of military language. 
there's a reason for that. There's a lot of parallels between the world of business and the world of, of conflict, unfortunately. You talk about competitors, you talk about market share, territory, etc. So it's not surprising that strategies that have been successful in the world of conflict and in the world of warfare have made their way into business. And in relation to what we're talking about, we're going to hone in on something called the New Lanchester Approach, which originated in Japan, where two people, Nobuo uh, Taoka, I hope I said that right, and Shinichi Yano, these were business consultants out in Japan, and they adapted Lanchester's laws to strategic and tactical marketing. And I'll go ahead and put a link to the paper that describes the new Lanchester approach here in the show notes if you want to look at that. But the concept was simply applying Lanchester's laws to the world of marketing, of a way of taking customer share, taking market share, which is essentially customers, away from a numerically or you know from a resource perspective, just from a bigger competitor. So how the little guy basically can fight the big guy with some success and at the heart is this concept of force concentration let's make it real with an actual case study where this was applied with immense success and we'll draw from that some lessons that we can use in our in our personal lives okay in the late 1970s going into early 1980s Canon Corporation. Now, you might know Canon from, from cameras. You probably have seen a lot of Canon cameras, maybe a lot of Canon lenses, but Canon at the time was known for its cameras and optical equipment, but they were trying to get into the photocopying business. So the Canon photocopiers you see around today, they weren't the original business the, the, the company was involved in. They came later on. There was one problem, though. There was a really big player in the photocopying business. Another company you might have heard about, Xerox. Canon wanted to get into the UK market, the market of the United Kingdom. But there was already, again, a big player there called Xerox. Canon's Japanese. Xerox is an American company. That might not really matter, but you'll see why I mentioned that in a second. And I... Let me just speculate here for a second that Canon used the new Lanchester approach to the T. And I'll tell you why I think this. I couldn't find any sources that confirmed it, but it's too coincidental that the way they played this was basically the new Lanchester approach playbook down to some specific numbers, which we'll get into. And that's why I think Canon played the new Lanchester approach. But when, let me tell you the story of what happened, first of all. So Canon wanted to infiltrate the UK market, where Xerox was a big player, a big fish, if you will. Other companies had tried to do this, but they hadn't succeeded. Kodak, for example, couldn't beat Xerox over there. But what Canon did was a combination of what I will describe shortly as the 300 rule and simply force concentration. So what exactly did Canon do? Well, they had all of the UK they were trying to take over from Xerox. But did they go after all of the UK? Keep in mind, they were a smaller company, less experienced in the photocopying business. So it would have been you know, business suicide to go up against ranks, to go up against the Xerox Corporation. But instead, they picked a small territory. It's starting to sound familiar. Of Scotland. Canon went after the market of Scotland. They threw all their force behind that campaign. They, they, they infiltrated Scotland, started to take market share slowly but surely away from Xerox in Scotland. Now, that's the forced concentration bit. Let's now talk about what I call the 300 rule. If you've seen the movie 300, and if you haven't, I recommend it. It's a decent movie. A little gory, so if you don't like gory scenes or, you know, 
if you're if you're squeamish, I wouldn't recommend watching it because it does show a little bit of violence. It, it is about warfare, hand-to-hand combat and all that stuff. But it was a blockbuster movie when it came out starring Gerard Butler. And it chronicles the legend of the 300 Greek warriors, the Greek Spartans, who stood up against, I think it was about a million, if I'm not mistaken, or at least 100,000. I'll, I'll get the actual number, maybe stick a link to it, to some summary of it in the show notes here. But a numerically huge, greatly outnumbered, right, in this sense. And what did the 300 do? Now, they had some help from some other um, tribes around that weren't a warrior tribe like they were, but they were still terribly outnumbered, a couple hundred maybe, versus this force of about a million soldiers. So goes the legend. And what did they do? Well, the king, King Leonidas, came up with a strategy where he, instead of waiting for the Persians to come to shore and be able to invade their land, they advanced instead and set up in a certain area where they, they had a very narrow opening between two large mountains. So basically funneling the force of the Persians into that narrow pass. And because the Spartans were a warrior nation, they had a very a very strategic, or rather very a very interesting and powerful tactical form of combat called, I think it was called the tortoise shell, where they would stand with their shields locked in place, and it was really difficult for any enemy to penetrate that formation. And from there they could they could deliver, they could launch incredibly damaging salvos of attacks against their enemies. They had perfected this to a science. There are actually, you know, stories written about this. Military historians have studied this, this, I think it's called the tortoise shell formation that makes them rather really impregnable. What does all this have to do with force concentration? Well, the 300 rule is what I describe as the the, the way in which you set up the area of play, the way in which you set up the environment of play so that it plays to your greatest advantage. The Spartans did not have the numbers, but they had a tactic where if they could eliminate the relevance of numbers, they stood a good chance of winning. Now, if you, I'm not going to ruin the movie for you. If you want to watch it, go watch it. it. It does have quite a bit of a twist at the end. But the point of bringing in what I'm calling the 300 rule from hence, you know, the 300 Spartans is any way in which you can fix the environment in your favor so that your strengths matter more than the enemy's numbers is the second formula, the second part of the formula to applying force concentration. How did Cannon do this? See, leading up to this, let's call it, attack by cannon on Xerox, Xerox had made an amazing profit by leasing out really large, effective, and also super fast printing machines, photocopying machines, not printing, photocopying machines, to big companies and corporations. The companies would just lease the machines, Xerox would get the money, the machines were clearly very expensive because they were huge, and they could photocopy, you know, really, really fast. How did Canon play the 300 rule? They brought in machines that were smaller, not as fast, I should say, but cheaper and of high quality. They leaned into their experience with designing optics and created these machines. So they kind of changed the landscape of the market a little bit. They changed the game. So this, in combination with forced concentration of focusing on Scotland, made Canon able to infiltrate that market very, very efficiently and begin to take market share very quickly from Xerox. Now, here's why I think they were using the new Lanchester approach as a playbook. 
once Canon achieved 40% market share, then and until then they did not take they did not try to enter into a new territory but once they hit 40% market share in Scotland they then moved on to another area and did the same thing and then moved on to another area and did the same thing and moved on to another area and so on and so on building momentum building experience along the way what does this have to do with New Lanchester? Well, I was going through the paper and I found that there was a mention of something called the magic barrier and that magic barrier is the percentage of market share where in any industry, any business that has more than two competitors, the competitor that has 41.7% or more is considered the dominant one. And if that competitor, if that player ever drops below 41.7%, they need to start doing something to regain their dominance. Now, 41%, 41.7% sounds terribly close to 40%. And this might have just been a rounding, you know, on the basis of reporting for what Canon actually did. It might, they might have been playing 41.7%, who knows? But I find it interesting that the new Lanchester approach recommends this number, and that was roughly the number that Canon hit before moving on to another territory. So that's my speculation. Make of that what you will. But nonetheless, Canon waited until they achieved some kind of strength or dominance in Scotland before they moved on to another territory. And that's noteworthy. Let's just shorten the story. Canon repeated this over and over and over again. And not until they had had years of experience taking over market share, continuing, continuing truly Japanese style, investing heavily in R&D, that's research and development, improving their product, understanding the market, improving their strategy, growing their sales force, continually, continually improving, not until they had achieved success in many areas of the UK did they go after the single largest market then in the UK, which obviously was the capital city of London. If you've been following this podcast, or if you've been interested, or if you've been, if you've been a student of the 80-20 principle, you know that 20% of inputs account for 80% of outputs. Similarly, in, in, in the world, in, in cities and towns and countries, usually a small city or a small city in terms of its as a proportion of the larger country, a small city will account for most of the population and most of the economic activity, typically. London is one of those. Now, here's where it gets very subtle, but very interesting. It would have seemed sensible for Canon to go after London being really the vital few. If they had gone after London and captured the London market, you could say they would have won maybe 80, I don't know what the number is, maybe 60, 70% of the, all of the UK's market, something disproportionately large anyway. That would have been, we would have thought they were playing the 80-20 game. But you see the little wrinkle, the little subtlety that forced concentration brings into this is, it's not always the smart thing to do to go after the vital few right away. If you add the layer of force concentration and the layer of the 300 rule, where you're strong and understanding where the enemy is perhaps weaker or where at least you can overwhelm the enemy with your force, with your strength, then it might make more sense to go after that. And in the process, build up your capacity until you can go after the really big win. To wrap up the story, 
Xerox did not know what hit them. And why I mentioned earlier on that it was an American company versus a Japanese company, you might be familiar with the way the Japanese companies pretty much took over, at least infiltrated the auto industry as well in, in America, right? Similar story, similar story. They use the concept of continuous improvement, high quality products, lower price, get a huge share of the market. Talking about companies like Toyota, who now have the whole Toyota way of product of production and manufacturing. Let's not get into that too much, but I find it interesting that, you know, this happened not just in the auto industry, but now we're learning it also happened in the copying industry way back in the 1980s. So there's something there for sure. But let's now go into Knowing now what happened, Xerox did not know what hit them. And within a very short time, you know, before they could adjust and adapt, Canon had pretty much taken over the copying, the copying market, introduced consumer size, consumer price products, and Xerox was quickly edged out of their position of dominance in the photocopying world in the United photocopying market of the United Kingdom. Let's now move on to why that's important, relevant, useful to you. Let's draw some lessons from that and apply that to our personal lives, our productivity, going, of course, the 80-20 way. So how can we apply lessons from the Canon Corporation to our own lives, especially as we try to live the 80-20 way? A few points that we'll talk about in this section, we'll kind of walk through them. The first one is focus on one area at a time, starting with the quick win or the smallest, uh, the smallest challenge. The second one is continue to innovate and improve along the way. Never stop learning, never stop improving. Related to points one and two, of course, is attack the big boss last. And the last one we'll talk about is understand who your army is as an individual. Understand who your army is as an individual. So let's walk through that. The first one, focus on one area at a time until you have mastered it. This is so important. Related to that is start with the smallest, the quick win approach. And the most efficient way I can think of to illustrate this is with debt. Not death, D-E-A-T-H, but D-E-B-T, debt. Why am I talking about debt? Well, it has a lot of overlap and correlation with the bigger lesson we're going to learn about forced concentration here in a second. When people have a lot of debt, let's say more debt that they can, than they can handle conveniently. And a lot of people in North America know what this is like. If you're listening to this, maybe you've had to handle debt. Maybe you're going through handling debt. Maybe you know someone who's handling debt on some level. The debt especially can be very crippling as those interest rates start to pile on and pile on. At some point, some people a lot of people have to file for bankruptcy just to get some respite. So debt can be very crippling, very damaging. But how do you approach debt repayment is an important question. Now, there are two approaches. Let's assume that a person has a lot of consumer debt. Let's say they have some credit card payments. They have some payments on some electronics they bought and they're paying back, you know, bit by bit. Maybe they have line of credit debt, you know, max out the lines of credit. Maybe they have a mortgage. They have all this debt that they're paying, car payments, for example, all this debt that they can't afford. 
Now, all of this debt will come at different interest rates. Typically, as you know, mortgages typically have the lowest interest rate. Credit cards typically have the highest, especially brand credit cards or retail credit cards are typically up there, upwards of 20%. Lines of credit a little bit cheaper. Now, depending on how the person has racked up this debt, what would make sense for them in attacking the debt? Well, that's the question. If they were to look at it purely from, from a mathematical standpoint, they would be best served by attacking the debt with the highest interest. So attacking the credit card debt, for example. But what if that credit card debt is also the largest debt they have? Would it still make sense to attack the credit card debt? Well, mathematically, yes. They would save a lot more money on interest if they attacked the credit card debt. Let's say that credit card debt was $10,000, right? And they wanted to attack it. They could try, and it would make sense mathematically. And that's what's called the avalanche approach, where you attack the most expensive debt and then move from there to the next expensive, to the next most expensive, to the next most expensive, until you pay off the cheapest debt. And in that way, over the course of your debt repayment, could be years. You know, you save quite a bit of money on interest. That's an avalanche approach. That does not necessarily work for most people because we're not machines we're not robots we're not automatons we're human so the approach that seems to work the best for a lot of people is what's called the snowball effect as opposed to the avalanche effect the snowball effect you take the debt not in terms of how expensive it is but simply based on its size so you take the smallest debt you have and you focus on paying it down let's say it's a thousand dollar electronic piece something you bought for a thousand dollars and then you're paying it down slowly with some kind of payment plan so you focus on that and you pay that off and then you put whatever money was paying that off into the next debt snowballing it you see and then pay that off and snowballing and snowballing and snowballing until now all this money you've been using to pay the debt starts to add up right say you were paying a hundred dollars every month when you pay that off that hundred dollars becomes available you push that roll that into the next one add some more money hence snowballing. I've taken a lot of time to explain this, and I'm sorry if it's it's gotten boring for you, but it's very closely related to forced concentration. The avalanche approach makes sense, and that's similar to what Cannon would have done had they gone after the London market. The snowball effect is what they actually did, which was smarter, going after the Scotland market first. So here's the point. The point is, when you're faced with a huge endeavor, a huge challenge. Always ask yourself, if you're going to apply a forced concentration, what makes more sense? Should I go after the biggest thing? Do I have the resources, the mental ability, the fortitude, the will, the skill, right? The experience, the resources to tackle this biggest thing. It may be the 20% that will give you 80% of the returns, but it's no, it's no use if you can't tackle it or overcome it. Or should I go after the quick win? The thing that I know if I focused on, I could get quick, a quick win, a big victory that I can then use to build experience, build momentum and work my way up so that by the time I'm facing that big challenge, the really big piece, I am now bigger than it is. That's important. When you start, it's bigger than you. But by the time you're done, you're bigger than it.
All right. So that was the first thing. Focus on one area at a time and start with the smallest win. The second point we get from Canon is, oh, I just I just realized Canon. It's like a war. It's like a, a Canon is something you use at war. OK, I digress. Just a, an interesting coincidence there. Is it a coincidence? Ooh. OK, well, let's keep going here. OK. Second point, continue to innovate and improve along the way. You never stop learning and improving. We know from Canon's campaign against Xerox that they continued to build on their research and development. With every market they entered into, they were constantly learning, truly in the Japanese Kaizen way. Learning, improving, adapting, getting better. They invested a lot of resources in R&D, again, so that by the time they were going up into the London market to take this final prize, as it were, Xerox was outclassed in virtually every realm that mattered. How does this apply to you? Well, are you investing in your own research and development, your own R&D? Are you improving yourself on the, on the path to whatever it is that you're trying to achieve? Might be a health goal, might be a business goal, might be a financial goal, whatever it may be. You, you will need strength, you will need resources, you will need skills and knowledge. How are you investing in R&D? I remember a while back, I, I was listening to an audio program. I believe it was by Brian Tracy. And he talked about thinking about yourself as a business. And one of the points he made was businesses invest in research and development. And so he posed the question, he said, what percentage of your income or of your revenue are you investing in yourself for R&D? Different companies have different percentages, but it'll be, it'll be rare to find companies that are not investing some amount of their income, of their revenue or profits back into R&D, especially companies like Canon, who depend on technology to, to produce products that people want to buy. You are not a company necessarily like Canon, but you can think about yourself in these terms and learn from Canon, learn from corporations, learn from businesses that are profitable and reinvest in yourself. Would you reinvest 10% of your income in yourself so that you're a bit sharper, a bit more effective when you come up against a challenge? And challenges can be many different of many different types, but it's worth educating yourself and investing in yourself in whatever area it is that you're trying to get better at or whatever quote-unquote territory it is that you're trying to take. And I submit this to your imagination to do with it what you will. Think about whatever it is you're trying to achieve or overcome. How can you improve yourself so that you are better able to tackle it? You know, it reminds me of Stephen Covey who said, sharpen the saw, right? If you had a tree to cut down, would you spend time trying to cut down the tree with a blunt axe or would you spend more time shopping the axe so that you can cut down the tree in a shorter time r&d learning and development is like sharpening the saw it's like sharpening the axe so you can cut down the tree much more efficiently all right now let's talk about the big boss <laughs> attacking the big boss london leave the big boss for last i have a book here in my library by steve camb it's a book called level up your life and it's an interesting read he uses the analogy of video games to talk about how you can level up your life and one thing you notice in video games if you play a lot of video games is the games start out slowly not slowly sorry the games start out 
relatively easily, right? Your character, whoever you're playing, especially if it's a storytelling, like a quest type of game, the person doesn't have a lot of skill, you know, doesn't have a lot of weaponry maybe in fighting enemies. But as time goes on, the person starts to build experience, gain experience points, upgrade their weapons. I remember when I was in 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 second in high school, secondary school, that we call it. I used to play The Legend of Zelda on the Nintendo Game Boy. Some of my listeners here will know that little handheld console game, Legend of Zelda. And every stage you played, you'd have this boss, a mini boss that you would face. And over the course of each level, you would pick up little weapons, pick up little potions, little magic spells and whatever, and you could use them to fight this big boss. And going through all the stages at the end of the game, you faced a really big boss. So video game designers understand that and when you're playing a game, you start off with very little experience, very little skill, and they bookmark your progress through the game with a boss. You don't start off the game fighting a boss, and you don't start off every level fighting a boss. The boss is typically what you have to defeat to quote-unquote level up. Why have I taken so much time to talk about video games and leveling up in magic potions and weaponry? It's, sim- it's related to what we've learned from canon. The big boss in Canon's world was London. It was the big market, the really challenging prize or trophy they had to win. And winning London meant the ultimate leveling up for Canon, at least in, in, the, in the UK market, and I would argue globally. But they did not attack London first. And I invite you to think about your approach to, to change, your approach to productivity and development. Are you trying to attack the biggest thing, the most difficult thing first, especially when you don't have the resources to do so? Remember, snowball versus avalanche. It's not enough to have versus. There's also a psychological aspect. Going after the quick wins builds you up psychologically, builds up your confidence. Again, I submit this to your imagination. It's hard to, I can't tell whatever, I can't tell what it is that you're trying to achieve. But whatever it is, are you making the mistake of going after the big boss without having enough skill, resources, fortitude to do so? You know, I know I think about people who want to get healthier. Sometimes they go after the most difficult part of healthiness, of health, (laughs) healthiness. That should be a word. They go after the most difficult part of health, right, which is maybe an optimized program. When I say optimized, I mean not optimized for them, but optimized probably for like a professional bodybuilder or something, right? As opposed to focusing on what is the quickest win they can have. The quickest win might be just showing up at the gym. It might be just going for a, going for a walk every day for 15 or 20 minutes. When they overcome that, now they have a routine. They've leveled up a little. They can now add another layer. They might add maybe a few, a few more demanding activities, maybe once or twice a week. And over time, they build capacity to tackle whatever that big boss may be. The big boss might be running a marathon, but you don't just get up and run a marathon from being a couch potato. You go after the quick wins you can get walking, exercising at the gym, maybe spending a few minutes on the treadmill until you eventually work your way up to the big boss of tackling that marathon. That's the most, I think, universal example I can think of. But whatever you're going through, think about how you can avoid the the trap of going after the big boss at the start of the game. Okay, and now let's talk about the last thing we learned from them. Not directly, but how we can apply it to you. What is your legion? What is your army? 
And I'll tell you right now, and I've implied this before in other episodes of this podcast, your resources, your legion, your army are based on two things. The only two things we all have universally, time and energy. Those are all the resources you have. Everything else you have in life comes from how you have used your time and your energy. Now, of course, there are circumstances of birth that might influence this and other factors, but you know, all things being equal, the difference between people is in the difference between how they've used their time and their energy. So money comes out of the use of time and energy. Your relationships comes out of the use of time and energy. Your skills and your abilities, your knowledge, they all come out of how you've used your time and energy. So here's what I invite you to do. And I think if I were to sum up this entire episode, it would be this. When you have a challenge before you, apply yourself most intensely and most intently in you with your time and your energy to tackling the easiest part of that challenge. First, stacking the odds in your favor so that your skills and what you have, whether it's your money, your relationships, those things count more than whatever disadvantage you have from the challenge and then just going at it with everything you have until you overwhelm it and then moving on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing until you ultimately win the entire territory. So time, energy. You can also think, you know, you can think about your money. You can use money to fight things, right? You can use skills to fight things. That's a big one. And relationships. I'm not suggesting that you treat people like things. People are not things. They should not be treated like things. But don't ignore the power that your relationships can play in helping you achieve your goals either. And then, of course, there's the 300 rule. You know, that doesn't need too much explanation. The 300 rule just means that you stack the deck in your favor. Whatever you can do to set up the environment so that you have the advantage is going to work for you. And this could be habit hacking. It could be in the world of business. It could be changing the game like Canon did whenever you were able to. Your imagination is going to be key to this and it's really about shifting how you're thinking to begin with and once you can shift how you're thinking to the mindset of force concentration and the 300 rule making those your guiding principles and attacking anything that comes against you or anything you want to, to achieve in life you will quickly find that it works amazingly i hope you've enjoyed this episode I hope you have had a good time. I hope you have at least been entertained. And as we wrap it up here today, remember, it is not what you know that matters, but what you do with what you know. Thank you for listening to 8020 Productivity. If you enjoy the show, then subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. And if you'd like to learn about how Anthony can help you or your organization drive gains through smart, focused productivity, then head over to anthonysani.com. Until the next episode, stay true to your vital few.